Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to the Consumer's Law Journal on ALR PRA Law Talk Radio. Today is Tuesday, September 21st, 2010, and I'm your host, Nick Augustine. This show is produced by ALR PRA Incorporated, a national law practice management agency headquartered downtown Chicago, Illinois, and serving greater Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. We help manage our clients' business so they can spend more time practicing law. Today's guest is Attorney Charles Cannon of the Cordic Law Firm located in Elmhurst, Illinois. Attorney Cannon is an experienced trial attorney who has successfully litigated many types of injury cases for more than 10 years. Attorney Charles Cannon has a bachelor's from Illinois Wesleyan in Bloomington, Illinois, and holds his law degree from DePaul University College of Law. Attorney Charles Cannon is a member of the American Association for Justice, the Illinois Trial Lawyers Association, the Illinois State Bar Association, the American Bar Association, and other professional organizations. Before we begin today, uh, we want to remind you that we do have two Law Talk radio shows. First, the Consumer's Law Journal, which airs every Tuesday, and second, the Lawyer's Toolbox, which airs on Thursday afternoons. Both Law Talk radio shows air at 3 p.m. Central, which is also 4 Eastern, 1 o'clock Pacific. We have a great show for you this afternoon, and we do invite your caller questions either by email to info at alrpra.com, which is again I-N-F-O at alrpra.com, or also by dialing into area code 917-889-9732 and pressing option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. Telephone number again is 917-889-9732, option 1. Want to let you know about a brief contest. All callers today do uh, are qualified for free admission to the fourth quarter social media update seminar that will be held here in Chicago. Uh, there's a morning session, October 21st, and a Wednesday, October 27th evening session. Regular price of admission is $25, and participants not located in the Chicago area will be able to attend via webinar. Quick disclaimer before we get going today, this is a general information program and the advice shared on the show does not constitute legal advice. Results may vary and are based on your facts and location. You're always encouraged to privately consult a professional and should be advised that the laws may vary from state to state as they could apply to comments made on the show. Comments made by callers uh, made by callers to attorney and other professional guests do not constitute an attorney-client or other professional relationship. All callers do remain confidential, and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALR PRA Incorporated. Uh, without further ado, we want to introduce our guest. Chuck Cannon is going to talk about uh, all sorts of things relative to personal injury. How are you doing, Chuck? Good. How are you today? I'm good. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, some good information um, that you can offer to uh, people on the street so they know what they should do in the event they are injured and uh, how they can uh, help you help them. So why don't we just start by telling us a little bit about your practice and how you got into this line of work. Well, thanks for having me. I have been a personal injury trial lawyer for over 10 years, just short of 11 years now. I got into it starting working at a litigation firm prior to law school and throughout law school as a law clerk and then stayed on with that firm after law school for many years. Currently, I'm at a firm out in Elmhurst, but we litigate all over the state of Illinois in both state and federal courts. Generally, what happens is if someone is injured, they call us for help, and we determine whether or not another person was negligent and caused their injuries. And it can be any sort of case. It can be an automobile accident, medical malpractice, or defective product, and there's various other scenarios. With an automobile case, it's sort of your typical automobile accident. It can be anything from a 
rear end or whiplash type case to catastrophic injuries resulting in brain damage, death, or permanent disabilities. Automobile cases might be the most straightforward kind of case because many people are familiar with dealing with their own insurance company for their automobile insurance and even have some experience dealing with other companies if there's a fender bender or things of that nature. There are some matters that people aren't familiar with with automobile cases though. Some of those can include if you're a passenger in a car, you can have a claim both against the driver and owner of the car or against the other vehicles involved. Additionally, with automobile accident cases, it's important to recognize that your own auto coverage or the coverage for the car you're riding in can have what's called medical payment coverage. This is no-fault coverage. It's usually a low limit of $1,000 to $5,000, sometimes more, but generally you can get some money right away from them in order to help you pay your medical bills while you're trying to figure the rest out. If you're in an automobile, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I was going to say, if someone is in an automobile accident, the most important thing with regards to the personal injury side of it is to assess whether or not you're injured. Sometimes your injuries don't really start affecting you until the day after or even two days after, and they can be anything from muscle stiffness and soreness all the way to fractures that really don't seem that serious when you're shaken up and trying to recover from the initial collision. The important thing to do is if you are injured, make sure that you see a doctor or go to your urgent care center and get some care. Because if that injury turns out to be serious, you need to have a record that shows that it's connected to that initial car crash. Obviously, at the scene of the crash, you want to go ahead and get the other driver's information and make sure a police report is completed by the police if there's any hint that you might be injured or that it might be a serious collision. So that's at the scene. Uh, what, so can we get a list again of what people should do if they're in an accident at the scene? Well, at the scene, you want to make sure you get the other driver's information. Okay. If it's anything other than the mildest of collisions, you want to make sure that the police come and complete an Illinois traffic crash report that will record exactly what happened and also make sure that the insurance information and identifying information for the driver and owner of all the vehicles involved is recorded. Afterwards, if you need help, the officer may call an ambulance to the scene or you need to go see your doctor or any doctor at an emergency room or, emergency or urgent care center as soon as you can if you're injured. That's because you need to start getting your own treatment and also you need to get a record created that shows that you were injured in the crash. If you have no injuries whatsoever, obviously you don't need to seek treatment. However, if you have any injury that seems to be lasting longer than you expect, longer than a couple of days, the smart thing to do is at least go see your own doctor and find out if your doctor thinks there might be something more serious underlying that. Okay. Uh, so is there anything else that they should do uh, as far as record keeping? Should they keep a journal or...? Keeping a journal is really up to the person. The important thing is to make sure you get the other driver's information and get that police report, as I said, and then go mm -hmm. see your doctor and keep a, keep a handle on all of your different medical bills. As long as you keep now, what the bills that you're, that you're sent, then an attorney, if you see one afterwards, will be able to find out who you saw and get your medical records if they need them. Okay. Well, Chuck, what happens if the person does not have uh, current health coverage? Uh, and they're concerned about going to going to see, you know, going to the doctor. If they, let's say they don't have a doctor, what should they do then? Generally, in an urban area like Chicago, it's not going to be too difficult to find a doctor who will see you, based on the fact that there's car auto insurance involved. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you can't get to an ER 
or an urgent care center, generally calling your own family physician or, or internal medicine physician, they will let you know if they'll see you or if they'll recommend someone for you to see. In more rural areas, it can be harder to find a doctor that will do that, but around here, it should not be too difficult. Now, another issue is even if you don't have health insurance, you need to keep in mind that if the car you're in or your own car has auto insurance, it almost always will have medical pay coverage. And as I said, that can be a low limit of coverage, somewhere from 1000 to 2500 or more. But that's enough money to get your initial medical bills paid to make sure you can get that treatment. To get your medical pay coverage to cover the bills, simply tell the doctor when you check in your insurance information for your own auto insurance, or it could be the insurance of the car you were riding in if it was someone else's car. And then you can process it that way, and they'll know you have some insurance coverage. Even if it's a, a, the lower limit of only $1,000, generally enough to get you through your first doctor's visit and make sure you're covered and can be seen by a treating physician. Then, after the fact, once you start getting your treatment, you can work on negotiating through your attorney with the other driver's ins auto insurance to make sure that you can be compensated and the rest of your bills can get paid. Okay, so as you're going along through the initial stages, the client's not going to have to necessarily wait until there's a final offer of settlement to have some of their bills paid in the short term, so they shouldn't uh, be uh, you know, dissuaded from going to seek treatment. Um, would that be true? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And even if there's no insurance of any kind, if you're in pain and you've been injured in a car accident or any kind of accident, you need to at least go to an emergency room where you can get treatment, regardless of the insurance availability. Because sometimes, even if you're up and walking around, you can have a serious injury and you need to make sure it gets checked out. Okay. So you've gone. So let's see. We've gone through the steps. We've gotten the insurance information. We've exchanged. Uh, well, exchange insurance information. Ideally, have a police report. Go see uh, initial treatment, um, and then. At what point should they go see an attorney if they believe they have injuries? Um, you know, what, when's a good time to uh, decide to go see a lawyer? Well, the important thing to keep in mind is that in Illinois and every other state, there are legal deadlines for making a claim. In Illinois, it's generally going to be two years if we're talking about an automobile crash. So you have up to two years to get an attorney and get your claim and get your lawsuit on file. I wouldn't recommend waiting that long because often that will just delay you getting your money. My suggestion would be whenever you feel ready, contact an attorney, and then you can start working up your claim. Very often I've been successful in automobile accidents and settling a claim without even having to file a lawsuit. That's very beneficial for the injured party because then they can get their compensation without the additional cost of filing suit and especially without the additional time of filing a lawsuit. In Illinois and generally any county where you're going to file a lawsuit, it can add between one to three years onto the time it takes to get your compensation, whether it's by way of settlement or trial. Once you're in the system, things get delayed, drawn out quite some ways. You can't always settle a case without a lawsuit, but especially in an automobile accident, it's certainly not unusual. So I would say the best thing is to contact an attorney as soon as you're ready to, whether it be when you get out of the hospital or when you feel able to recount the events to an attorney, and that way, as you're treating or when you're done treating, the attorney can gather all of your medical records together, provide them to the other insurance company's adjuster, and start negotiating for your compensation.
Okay, here's another question. When you change the insurance information, isn't it likely that you're going to receive a call from an insurance adjuster? And what should what, do you, what should people do at that point? That's a very good question and something you need to be very careful about. If you get a phone call from the other driver's insurance company, you need to be very careful because very often they're going to want to take a tape-recorded statement from you. And sometimes they ask very honest questions just trying to find out what's going on. Other times it's not unusual that the last question is designed to make you look as though you're completely at fault or sharing in the fault in the crash. So my recommendation would be once the other driver's insurance company starts calling you, you need to be very careful about what information you give and what kind of questions they're asking. Also be very careful because in Illinois they have to disclose to you that they're recording anything and, and get your permission. And I'd be very careful and hesitant about giving a recorded statement to any other driver's insurance adjuster. If your own insurance adjuster calls you, then pursuant to your auto insurance contract, you're required to cooperate. And I would certainly recommend that you, you talk to them and give them the information they need so they can help you with your MedPay claim. So you can, would it be fair to tell the, um, the, the other person's ensure that you want to wait and talk to a lawyer before calling them back? Is that going to be a problem? Uh, do most people, do most insurance companies um, accept that response? Or does that work against someone? No, that won't work against you. It's not unusual at all for someone to retain an attorney, and insurance adjusters will be more than happy to deal with an attorney rather than a driver. Rarely you'll get an adjuster who might start arguing with someone about retaining an attorney, and that's a situation where you definitely would not want to talk to the adjuster and is completely within a person's rights to say that they have retained counsel or intend to retain counsel and ask that adjuster to wait until their attorney contacts them. Okay. Now, back, backing up, back to the scene of the accident, um, what if the person, uh, the injured party, believes that they may be partially to blame? I know oftentimes in the heat of the moment people start apologizing and saying, oh, it was all my fault, no, it was my fault. Um, I've, I've been in an accident like that where the guy came out of the car, came running over to me and started apologizing and telling me it was his fault. Um, it was in Downers Grove and actually ended up that I got the citation for failure to yield and um, I lost. But uh, the, you know, the, the guy comes running over to me. I mean, what do you, what do you tell people? Um, you know, when they say after, you know, they say Chuck. Well, I uh, talked to the officer and I said, oh, it was my fault. I I blew the um, you know I blew the stop sign. But what you know, what if in the in in the you know, the midst of an accident, maybe they're confused or, um, you know, not sure or feeling, you know, all sorts of emotions and psychological things are going on. So um, what, should, what should you do if you think it might be your fault? Um, and what if you say that it's your fault? And can you, is that, is that nail shut in your case or what? Not necessarily, and that brings up several issues. First, if, if the crash is your fault, you're likely not going to be able to recover from the other driver. Uh, Generally in Illinois, juries and judges are very fair and adjusters understand the facts as well as, as everybody else. And if the accident is your fault, I would not bank on being able to make a frivolous claim and recover for that. That's something that doesn't happen in the real world. However, if you're not sure or you don't know what happened, it's one thing to apologize and, and hope someone's okay and talk to the other driver, but you certainly should not be admitting fault and saying that something's your fault if, you, if it's not or even if you don't know that it is. Your example is a good one where once the officer came to the scene who's trained in dealing with accidents and assessed the issue, he had a different conclusion than someone who was saying it was all my fault. Uh, when you said earlier that you lost, I assume you're talking about traffic court. 
because yeah. things like that certainly aren't dispositive in a, in a lawsuit. Very often in lawsuits, neither driver or neither none of three drivers or more will know what happened to cause the crash. When that police officer comes to the scene, he's going to be taking down the names not only of the drivers but also different eyewitnesses at the scene. All of those people are people that I, as an attorney, can call and find out what they saw or if we're in a lawsuit, we can take sworn depositions from them and get their statements on the record of what they saw and what their opinions are. Generally, once the facts are shaken out, the truth comes out pretty much as it occurred. But I would say definitely don't start admitting fault if it's not your fault just because you want to make someone feel better because what you say can be used against you. Even if the officer does not write it down in the report, if someone hears you saying that it was your fault, they can say that later in the middle of a lawsuit, and that will go to the jury. So your best advice is to, to what? Keep a uh, you know, name and rank only? That's safe. It's not necessary, and certainly when an officer is questioning you, you should tell him what happened to the best of your ability. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't come up saying it's my fault because you might not even know what happened. It's certainly not mm -hmm. unusual in a car crash for someone not to have seen the car until just a second or two before impact. Generally, that is what happens, because if you can see the car earlier than that, often the crash might be avoided. That's a very good point. Let's pause for our first sponsor break, uh, and then we'll be back with more questions uh, and Q&A on personal injury law with attorney Charles Cannon of the Cordic Law Firm located in Elmhurst, Illinois. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Consumer's Law Journal on ALR PRA Law Talk Radio. Our first sponsor today is the law firm of Nancy K. Ducharme. When you need the right legal services to advance your creativity, call the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, internet law, and advertising law. You can find the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme by visiting nkdlaw.com and also by searching for the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme on Facebook. By clicking the like button on the law firm's fan page, you'll receive periodic blog updates with recent developments and the rapidly changing field of intellectual property law. Back now to the Consumer's Law Journal. We do encourage our callers to call in with questions at area code 917-889-9732 and press option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. Now back to Attorney Charles Cannon. Um, I have a question about private investigators. How often do private investigators get involved with uh, auto accidents? It's not unusual at all. I, I hire private investigators frequently to talk to eyewitnesses and, and take recorded statements from eyewitnesses if, if we need to. Very often an insurance company or an attorney for some other party can do the same. Uh, whether or not someone talks to an investigator is up to them. However, investigators are usually trained or experienced. And so, again, as I said with the insurance adjuster, if an investigator comes to talk to you and you've retained an attorney or have any intent in retaining an attorney, I would suggest you tell that investigator that they need to talk to your attorney. They'll record or write down or sometimes have a court reporter transcribe everything you say, and again, anything you say could be used against you. So that's something to be very careful about. Chuck, let's move on to another topic, uh, if you don't mind. I'd like to ask you a little bit about construction and work accidents. What are some things that people should know or might not already be aware of? Well, if someone gets injured at work, I would say the very important aspect of that is to report it to a supervisor and make sure an incident report is completed. There are several different things that you can do to obtain compensation when you're injured at work. 
but they all start with getting an incident report and a record made. What you don't want to happen is to get hurt at work and try to shake it off and ignore it for several days, then realize it's too much for you to live with. You might wind up with an adversarial response from your employer or the employer's insurance company. Even if your employer wants to help you and believes you, the insurance company, whether it be workers' comp or some third party, might realize there's no incident report filled out and decide to deny the claim or fight the claim. When someone gets injured at work, most often everybody realizes there could be a workers' compensation claim. If someone's injured in the course of their employment, that injury is generally going to be worth some compensation from workers' comp if it's a real injury. In workers' comp, you don't have to prove that someone was negligent. It's considered no fault. However, the downside is there's no reward for pain and suffering. Generally, you get a reward for uh, what's considered the loss of a man, and that's worked out through various charts and things depending on what the injury it is and how it affects the individual person. But you look at the percent of loss, whether it be percent of loss of an arm, percent of loss of the person as a whole, or anything else. Something that people miss sometimes when they're hurt at work is that it, there might not only be a workers' compensation claim. Under workers' compensation, you don't receive pain and suffering. You're, you get a percentage of your wages, you get your bills paid, and then whoever that percentage is at the end of your case. However, people get hurt at work on machinery. If someone gets hurt at work on a machine, whether it be a forklift or a metal slitter or any other kind of device, there can be a claim made against a third party. It can be the manufacturer of the machine, the designer of the machine, an outside maintenance company that maintains the machine, or it could be the person or company that sold that machine. That's what's called a product liability case. And if you can show that a product is defective and that defect makes it unreasonably dangerous, often a recovery can be made not just from workers' comp, but also against the designer, manufacturer, or seller of that company. There are many, many different ways that a product can be defective. It can be defective because it continues to run after you try to turn it off, because it lacks different safeguards, whether it be a solid barrier or some kind of a light barrier. It can be defective because there is not an adequate warning or because there's not adequate instructions provided to your employer so that you can be taught how to use the product appropriately. And all of those are things that I look at if I have a client who's in a work injury to make sure I get the maximum compensation for my client. Now, a question that, now the work comp, can you explain a little bit more how that works? Do you handle the work workers' compensation uh, aspect in connection with everything else when a client comes to you? Well, yes, sometimes I get a client who comes in and with a work injury, and I'll handle the workers' compensation claim as well as any third-party claim, whether it be a, a construction case or a, a product liability case or anything else. Also, sometimes I'll have a workers' compensation attorney who's already handling a comp case call me because he doesn't do product liability and other kinds of cases like that, and I'll handle only the products case or construction negligence case, whatever it may be. So I do both of those, yeah. Okay. So they don't, all right. Um, all right, so we're, you know, we've looked at some places that people get injured, you know, in the car, auto, uh, at work, and other places people often may uh, be injured um, is at home. 
Uh, can you talk a little bit about injuries that occur in the home, guests who are coming over to visit, um, et cetera? And then I will ask you a question that was from an earlier broadcast where we had a caller uh, with a question about some liability. But first, can you just tell us what we should know as consumers about uh, personal injury and the home? Well, if you're a guest in someone else's home and you become injured, it really is a very fact-specific question. Depending on how you're injured, whether you fall down a step or, or trip over an issue, uh, whether it be a broken bricks in the sidewalk or a downspout or something of that nature outside the house, it really depends on whether that is, in fact, a defect or a dangerous condition, and it depends on whether the homeowner should have known about it and should have fixed it in time. For example, if, if you're walking into someone's house in the middle of winter and it's just snowed and you slip on the snow, well, you really can't blame a homeowner because it has just snowed. However, if in that house there is some defect with the gutters that leak or a downspout that pours water onto the sidewalk in a manner in which it's not supposed to and creates ice there in an unnatural way, well, then you may have a case. Again, it's very fact-specific because if you're tripping over something or slipping on something, if it's something that's open and obvious that you should see as you're walking past it, then you may not have a case back again. So it, it, it depends from situation to situation on exactly how you became hurt. Claims like that against a private homeowner would be against the homeowner's insurance, and the first thing you want to find out is whether they, in fact, have homeowner's insurance. Assuming they do, it works a lot like an auto case might. You want to make sure that you get your medical treatment right away if you're injured and not ignore your injuries because you want to make sure that once I get the case and I'm sending medical records to the insurance adjuster, it's documented that the injuries happened from that fall or whatever other sort of uh, occurrence there was. Well, okay. So that very well for homeowners, if they have a homeowner's policy, what if it's a renter? Well, if you're renting a premises and you become hurt in the place where you yourself live, the, the home, whether it be a apartment or a house or a condo, mm -hmm. if you're hurt, hurt there and, you, and it's the own place where you live, that's a very different situation because generally you cannot sue your landlord or the owner of the premises for injuries that occur in the premises you leased. That's because the complete responsibility and control over those premises is transferred to you by the lease. There are a couple of exceptions to that, however. If there is some latent defect in the home, meaning that it's something you would not see upon your reasonable inspection, just like everyone does a walkthrough before they lease a place, mm -hmm. if it's something you would not be expected to see, then you, can, you may still have an owner who's liable for that. Another issue is if there are code violations in that home that violate your local ordinances or, or state codes for that matter and those cause you injury, the conditions that are deviating from the normal codes cause you injury, then you may also have a case against the homeowner. Again, it's very fact-specific. Things you might see is if a, a townhouse or home has a defective handrail and a staircase, there are very specific codes for how handrails are supposed to be constructed so that if someone needs to use one, they can hold on to it, or, or in fact, if the handrail is just absent, that might be so, any fall any fall and can't grab a handrail to keep yourself up or to protect yourself. That might be a situation where there's an ordinance violation and the lessor or landowner or landlord might be at fault. 
I have a couple of follow-up questions to things in and around the home. Um, we did have a caller some time back who, when we had our uh, call in and ask a lawyer or anything uh, show, the question that the caller had was regards to a tree that was on the property in front of the sidewalk, between the sidewalk and the street, and that property was owned by the municipality. Uh, the gentleman caller was concerned that the tree was old and could potentially have a branch fall on the, you know, a child walking by, and it was right near a school. Um, you know, so what would happen in the event that, you know, a something were to happen? Um, and in, let's say he asked. I believe that he's indicated that he asked the municipality to trim the tree and they hadn't responded or were taking a while and he was nervous about his liability. Does he have liability there? He could. He could. And those those injuries happen and they can be very tragic. You can imagine what would happen when a 200-pound tree branch falls on anyone, whether it be a child or an adult. I've seen cases where people get paralyzed from things like that happening. The landowner and the municipality can both have some liability or it can be one or the other. Again, it's very fact-specific. If I'm trying to prove a case like that, the main issue is going to be notice, whether they knew or should have known that that tree was in a dangerous condition. And if a landowner is calling the city, that's pretty much evidence that they both know because he knows about it to make the call. And once he makes the call and documents it with the municipality, they now have actual knowledge of that condition. Most municipalities do have... Uh, divisions or they retain people that, that trim trees when they become dangerous or overhang or get in the way of traffic and things like that. And that landowner, again, it's very fact-specific, and I, I can't give him a, a formal opinion without taking a look at his property and all the different documents involved. But he could have some liability for that, and if the city isn't responding, he really needs to think about whether he can dig up some money and get that rectified by himself and then try to get reimbursed from the municipality in some way. Hmm. Have you seen that happen to people before where that's worked, where they take their own steps and uh, get reimbursed? That can happen, and I, I've seen that happen in different situations with the municipalities where they, the municipality might be willing to reimburse someone for fixing something like that. Huh. Uh, and that, Again, if the landowner can, can talk to an attorney, whether it's me or someone else, and they can figure out whether he has any liability, he may have to take that step. And if, if he has no liability, then I guess it's up to him if he wants to do anything about it. A situation I dealt with was in the city of Chicago. There was a tree like that on a on a parkway, and the lot was vacant. There was a decrepit old house there no one had lived in for many years and had been taken back over by the city or the county. And a tree branch, in fact, fell on someone and, and wound up uh, paraplegic from it. It was very sad. The municipalities, you have to understand, have a lot of different immunities as well. So it's very important that you can prove actual knowledge and reckless conduct on behalf of that municipality. So it's very important as landowners or neighbors in our own in our own towns that if we see a tree like that in a dangerous condition, whether it's on private property or municipal property, it's important to notify the municipalities so they can go out and fix it. Assuming that municipality might sadly be negligent and someone gets hurt, it's still important because then you'll have a record that they knew about it, and hopefully the injured person can at least get some compensation if the injury can't be prevented. Mm -hmm. Let me throw, uh, we were talking a little bit about some of uh, the uh, things around the house and having notice and knowledge that you have a defective condition on your property. Let's yeah. say, uh, for a hypothetical, that someone has a drain spout that's pointing the wrong way, it's pooling ice by the sidewalk, um, someone trips 
and falls, and the homeowner immediately runs out and uh, corrects the broken spout or replaces it, and uh, you know alleviates, gets rid of the ice. Uh, really quick, and then comes back and says, "I, you know, I had no broken spot. I don't know what this person's crazy. They're, I don't know what they're talking about." <laughs> um, you know, what happens in that event? Again, the, probably the PI gets involved, right? Well, yeah, an attorney may get involved if there's a dispute and they can't agree on anything. Uh, you know, I guess that happens sometimes. We get a he said, uh, classic he said, she said situation, and that can be where. Uh, the homeowner or whoever it is decides to correct the problem and then pretend it never happened. In a situation like that, you want to photograph the scene and, you know, the person can do it or they can call me or another attorney and, and the attorney or an investigator will do it. But even if the ice has been cleared, you can see generally how the downspout was defective or how the gutters are leaking. You can wait till the next rainstorm or the next snowstorm and see how the, the snow's melting or the rain is draining. And usually you can find some evidence of that. Uh, surprisingly, if you watch TV a lot, you get a lot of people in the shows that lie about everything, but generally people are pretty honest, and they may not agree that something is, in fact, their fault. Generally, you don't get people that just come out and make up a complete fiction and pretend something never happened. I've seen it happen, sure. but more often than not, people people will tell the truth but then deny any responsibility is what you may see. Got it, got it. Let's pause for a quick break, uh, and then we'll come back with some more questions about the who, what, where, when, why of injury and personal injury law with attorney Charles Cannon of the Cordic Law Firm of Elmhurst, Illinois. For those of you just tuning in, you are listening to the Consumer's Law Journal on ALRPRA Law Talk Radio. Our second sponsor is Jim Thompson of the Midwest Consulting Group. If you want to get more clients now, he's a seasoned attorney and marketing coach, and he can help you. Jim Thompson's program is called Get Clients Now, and he'll help you take the crucial steps towards increasing your law firm's revenues. The Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage and ask for referrals. Jim is going to be a recurring guest on the Lawyer's Toolbox show on Thursdays regarding attorney marketing. To learn more about Jim Thompson and the Midwest Consulting Group, please visit MidwestConsultants.net and also check out his testimonials on Facebook by searching Get Clients Now. ALRPRA strongly endorses the Get Clients Now program and understands the personal accountability component of this course. You can get in touch with Jim Thompson today by visiting MidwestConsultants.net. Just a reminder, the telephone number for people to call in and ask a question of Attorney Charles Cannon is telephone number 917-889-9732. Press option 1 to be placed in the queue. Again, 917-889-9732. And, of course, we always will take your questions after the fact to the extent you may be listening to this broadcast as an archive. Uh, always feel free to send us an email with a question, and we can forward that on to any of our guests. So, uh, Chuck, getting back to things, I have a question. Uh, before we go back to more places people may get hurt, can we talk a little bit about insurance policies and the concept of policy stacking and how that works? I know that may be a very, um, you know, the area that people don't know a lot of about, and, well, should, do they need to know more about that? Uh, what's the word on the street? Well, this is a, pr a pretty subtle area of practice, but you see it a lot when you're dealing with uninsured or underinsured motorist coverage. That can be a situation where uh, taking your typical car accident, if you, as the injured party, own one or more cars, you're going to have, hopefully, your own auto insurance policy, 
and hopefully that auto insurance policy will have underinsured and uninsured motorist coverage attached to it. What that means is if a negligent driver hits you and injures you or your family members and they have no insurance or not enough insurance to cover your injuries, you can make a claim against your own policy. Now stacking comes in where a person has more than one policy and generally if you own three cars you might have three different policies. Let's say each car has a $100,000 limit in its policy. Sometimes if you have a very severe injury and to be compensated for that you would require $300,000 or more than $300,000, you may be able to stack and that's where the stacking term comes in. That means you can, you can stack each policy on top of the other and obtain $300,000 even though each policy has only a limit of $100,000 per person. Very often in modern insurance writing you will see that the policies have anti-stacking clauses. That means that in a modern insurance policy there will be something in there which prevents you from stacking like that. And even though you may have several insurance policies through one or more insurance companies, the maximum limit of one policy, usually it's your highest limit policy, will be the most you can obtain. So if you have those hypothetical three policies, each with a $100,000 limit, if there's anti-stacking clauses and they're properly written, you're pretty much going to be limited to $100,000. Now I have litigated that issue because if policies have vague language, the insurance company may comp complain or claim that they have an anti-stacking clause but we will claim that that clause is so vague or that the language in the policies is contradictory and that the normal person wouldn't understand that they weren't able to stack. A normal person might think that they're paying for policies that can be stacked all along. Then sometimes you'll make a claim and wind up in litigation with your own insurance company to try to prove that you should obtain all of that for your compensation for your more severe injuries. Other states don't allow anti-stacking clauses. And in other states, you might find insurance written by the same company that allow for stacking. In Illinois, typically, we see a lot of anti-stacking clauses, and they can be pretty difficult to beat. Over the years, they've learned to write them such that a court will side with the insurance company and show there's no stacking. So it's important not to buy multiple policies thinking you can combine them all. The best thing to do is make sure you buy enough coverage so you can, if you can afford it, so that you can compensate yourself or your loved ones if there's a serious injury. Hmm. Very interesting. Most things that uh, not a, many of us really think about or would know, it wouldn't occur to me to um, to buy multiple insurance policies, but it does occur that sometimes people through their employment you know, might have several different insurance policies or um, you know, something that maybe the homeowner's policy might cover similar things that the, um, the auto and policy might cover. So uh, does it really matter whether it's the type of policy it is or, again, is that controlled by the uh, insurance contract? Well, usually, and again, I can't say always, nothing's 100%, but usually a homeowner's policy is going to specifically exclude automobiles mm -hmm. and, uh, unless it's some sort of recreational vehicle. It's typically the only way you see homeowner's policies covering automobiles. Uh, so, yeah, you will need a separate automobile policy to cover your automobiles in case of a car crash or something of that nature. And, again, it's it's really a person weighing the risk and benefits. You can buy all sorts of different coverage. It's becoming more and more popular to see people that buy a personal liability umbrella 
which is above and beyond any auto insurance they have, and you can get them up to a million dollars, I've seen, just to make sure you're completely covered if you're in a severe accident. That umbrella insurance is to cover you if, unfortunately, you might be at fault for an accident. Your, the personal liability umbrella you buy will make sure that the people suing you will have enough money out of your insurance so they don't try to go after your personal assets. However, in those umbrella policies, you can also get an umbrella UIM or UM, underinsured and uninsured coverage. But again, that's separate. And you need to be very careful when you're talking with your insurance agent or the insurance company directly, if that's who you're dealing with, to make sure you're buying the coverage you're expecting to buy. I've, I've dealt with people who had personal liability umbrellas, meaning if they were at fault, they had extra insurance to give to everybody else who they hurt. And they thought that it would apply to them if somebody else hurt them. But in fact, what they were doing was buying coverage to protect everyone else except themselves. So it's very important to make sure you understand your insurance policy and what you've bought. Reading the policies can be very confusing, and there's lots of litigation going on every day about what does a policy mean and what does it cover. It's very important that you work with your insurance agent or the, the insurance company you're buying it from to make sure you know exactly what you're buying. Now, Chuck, when we talk, you, you've mentioned uh, a couple times that you've talked about things that, that where it seems like consulting an attorney ahead of time might have been a good thing for uh, some folks. So if they have, if they're buying insurance, maybe you're a high, uh, you know, high net worth individual and you want to protect you and your family and their assets, you want to potentially talk to an attorney before entering into some of these policies or before in dealing with the uh, municipality, for example. So um, is, how, is it common that people will come to the law firm and uh, just retain you on a consulting uh, consultant type um, and transactional basis um, when there isn't an event, uh, you know, so proactively? Well, I personally don't do transactional work, meaning contractual type work. However, it's not unusual for someone to call me and they really don't think they want an attorney and they don't want to, they're not litigious people or they feel like filing lawsuits right away is not necessarily a good thing. Generally, in the personal injury field, we attorneys don't bill for a consultation. If someone calls us and, and wants to ask us some questions, we'll generally answer them and not require a retainer fee up front. So it's not unusual that someone calls or comes into the office and generally describes that being in an accident and what should they do. And my advice is generally what I've been saying on this call. I, it's hard to give specific advice out without knowing all the facts, but if someone has no injury, then generally they don't need a personal injury attorney. If someone has minor injuries or, or they, the accident has just happened and they're not sure how bad they're hurt, my advice would be, well, even if, if you're hurt in some way but you're not sure how bad it is, go see your family physician and get checked out. And they, they might want you to have some x-rays or have, have some uh, testing to see how badly you're hurt. You don't want to be diagnosing yourself any more than you want to be giving yourself legal advice if you're not an attorney. Certainly, certainly. Um, I have a follow-up question um, regarding families um, in the, the houses we're talking about. Um, you know, some of the uh, individuals who may cause injury may be uh, members of the family and or pets. So we've got children who, uh, you know, potentially, you know, let's say uh, the kids are playing on the playground and uh, your kid clocks another kid in the head uh, and it's pretty bad, or uh, your dog bites uh, the neighbor kid or um, you know, what, so what, what are some things that people should know about their kids and pets and um, those under their control as they're out there uh, going through life and as far as uh, liability and things are concerned? Well, if your child is out there and uh, you have a young child on the playground, the scenario you described, 
uh, generally a parent isn't going to be held personally liable for that unless they know that their child is, has some sort of violent tendencies or a history of, of abusing people and, and they don't mm-hmm. do anything to try to help the situation. Uh, you know, a, a child on the playground at school, the school's taking care of that kid and the school's the one that's supposed to be making sure everyone's okay. So if, if children are getting hurt on school playgrounds, then you want to look to the school. The thing to remember, though, is schools often have a lot of immunities, too, just like municipalities do. So it, it can be difficult to obtain compensation from a school. Uh, pets are a different matter. There's different, different laws that deal with pets. And if, if people, are, people are required to keep control of the pets they own. And so you don't, there's no, sometimes you, you hear about the one-bite rule. There's no one-bite rule. You don't, get to, you don't get a free bite with your pets. You need to keep them under control. If your dog's running around in the park off a leash and bites someone or, or runs someone over and knocks someone off a bicycle, well, you're going to be on the hook for that because people need to keep control of their pets. Another issue that happens is if someone enters your property and then your dog bites someone, usually you see this with small children because they don't know how to walk around dogs as well. But that's a, that's a separate issue. If someone comes onto your property, then you get into different issues about whether they may have been provoking the pet or things of that nature. Very good. Let's take a pause for our third sponsor break, and then we'll come back to some more uh, places and situations that people become injured. Again, we are speaking with attorney Charles Cannon from the Cordic Law Firm in Elmhurst, Illinois. Our third sponsor is credit damage expert George Finder. George Finder is one of the only credit damage experts in the country. Attorneys and plaintiffs who have retained his services have earned huge damage awards in various practice areas, including personal injury, employment law, family, and general civil litigation. By learning to incorporate credit damage questions in the intake process, you and your staff will be able to spot credit damage events worthy of retaining George Finder's credit damage analysis services. Right now, any of our listeners who contact George Finder and tell them that they heard about him on ALRPRA Law Talk Radio will receive, free of charge, one hour of CLE presentation. So grab a pen and take down this email address to respond to the special offer. The email address is creditdamageassociates at gmx.com. Again, creditdamageassociates, and that's plural, at credit at gmx.com. Available nationwide, George Finder's website is full of resources. Please visit creditdamageexpert.com to learn more about George Finder and his expert services. Let us remind our listeners who have any questions. Uh, we have about 15 minutes remaining in the show. If you want to call in, the telephone number is area code 917-889-9732. Again, 917-889-9732 and place option one to be placed in the queue. Now back to the Consumer's Law Journal. We're speaking with attorney Charles Cannon of the Cordic Law Firm in Elmhurst, Illinois. We've uh, So far we've discussed... Uh, places people get injured. We talked about auto cases, uh, people getting injured at work, people being injured at home or an apartment. We talked about policies with insurance and stacking, spoke a little bit about uh, children and pets who may cause injury. Um, how about injuries in public places? Um, Chuck, what's the word on public places and um, who, I suppose um, we want to you know, differentiate between a park and a shopping mall, but let's say um, we have an injury in, in public generally. What what happens in that event? Well, if you're talking about sort of your, your classic slip and fall type injury, it, it's, it also is fact specific and it really depends on who owns the premises and why the person became injured. 
you mentioned a park. Now, a municipally owned park that's intended for recreational activity, often the municipality that owns it can have immunity, whether it be a, a playground or a, a grass park or even a lake or forest preserve, there can be immunity for those recreational premises. So the attorney has to really investigate and figure out where, how the person got hurt and where they got hurt and who owns it. If you're talking about something of some private nature, whether a person trips or slips and falls inside a store, you know, often those are the those are the kinds of cases that people like to laugh about a, a slip and fall. But I've seen some very severe injuries from slip and falls. And, and if if someone owns a store or a, an office building or a, or a private train station or something of that nature, and there is not a a person cleaning up or making sure those premises are safe for the hundreds of people that have to use it every day, you can have some very severe injuries. And what you see in a large store or a small store is that entire store is designed to distract people. It's designed to draw their attention to different advertisements and different products on display. And if, if that floor has a spill on it or that floor is deteriorating such that it's cracked or bumpy or uneven or stairs are not in good shape or rugs are torn, the, the average person is not going to be looking at the floor. They're walking down an aisle and they know how to walk through an aisle without running into the sides and they're doing exactly what the owner of that premises wants them to do which is look at the products on the shelves and read the advertisements that are posted throughout the store. And you can see people slipping in, in situations like that. And I've seen people slip and, and, and from a simple fall from, from not a height, just from standing, have their necks broken or have their elbows broken and be completely disabled from work. So it's really a serious matter. And that's why pretty much every public place, whether it be an office building or a store, is going to have set procedures about what's supposed to happen to both keep the structure of the premises in shape and also to keep the floors clean and safe. It's usually only when there's a breakdown in that system that you get someone injured. And if someone slips or trips and falls inside a store or, or some other open property like that, generally you can, you can obtain some compensation for them. That is always a case where the, the Danger is usually remedied right away, especially if it's a slick spot on the floor from some product being spilled or from uh, water being tracked in. And the issue is really uh, making sure that you interview all the witnesses there, uh, locate all the witnesses, of course, and find out exactly what happened and make sure you make your claim on the right people. Sometimes a store is not at fault. It's really their landlord who they're leasing the property from. Sometimes a franchise, whether it be a, a restaurant franchise or a store franchise, is being run really from a franchise or the central national headquarters writes all their policies for them. And even though it's an independently owned franchise, you need to find an experienced attorney who knows how to investigate and figure out who is in control and who should be the one figuring out how to remedy problems like that. Very good. Um, I have some uh, other questions regarding some of the liability waivers. I know that when I went snowboarding last winter, um, there was language on the back of a lift ticket when I purchased it. That was one hill. When I went to another place, they actually made me sign a full one-page document saying that if I was injured there, I wouldn't sue. Um, you know, so my general question is, how do these hold up? Um, and you know, do can you really assume the risk of anything that's going on there? Um, you know, what about kids? Are kids playing uh, 
competitive football or you know or those you know I know that there are waivers you sign there if you want to play sports you sign your waiver that you're not going to sue so liability waivers um, how effective are they well the phrase you might hear from attorneys all over the country is you don't waive negligence and what you see in the waivers is generally they want a waiver for what you're signing up to do so if you're signing up to go scuba diving on vacation or signing up to uh, ride in a boat somewhere or things like that in my opinion that's what the waiver should apply to regardless of what kind of vague and all-encompassing language they put on it if, if you're uh, you know for example cases in my experience if people will, might sign a waiver when they're going on a scuba diving expedition or taking scuba diving lessons well that's one thing but if the equipment is defective and uh, and hazardous and, and seriously injures or kills somebody I don't think you've waived that what you've signed up to do is get good equipment even if you're doing a dangerous task you've signed up for good equipment and for reasonable training to do that task so if you get hurt scuba diving because you swim too deep and you bonk your head that's one thing but if the equipment's defective or your supervisor abandons you I don't think you can waive that when you talk about sports that actually brings into another issue another doctrine in the law uh, people call it the contact sports exception when you sign up for a sport and even sports you might not think are contact sports like like softball generally whether there's a waiver or not you're not going to be able to sue uh, your teammates or the opposing team or the the league that puts on the sports or the the field that owns the the company that owns the field where you play the sports for injuries that happen in the conduct of that sport again and I know I've said this several times but it's very fact specific and that's why the most important thing is if if you if you're not sure whether you've been wrongfully hurt or whether someone's negligence has caused you or your loved ones an injury the best thing to do is, is consult an attorney experienced in that field. It, it, it can be very, very complicated and esoteric, and a lot of these issues, when you talk about a waiver or a legal exception, such as when you're involved in a contact sport, it winds up in a judge's hands, and you want to have an experienced attorney to be able to argue your case to that judge. This is where, as an attorney, screening really comes into it. Frivolous cases don't get filed these days. Doing work like this is very expensive and very time-consuming. And what I do if a client comes in and got hurt on a softball field or on a ski lift, I need to find out all the facts and get all the law for whatever state they're in or, or whatever jurisdiction they're in, find out if it's a municipality or if it's privately owned, and really find out if there is a way to get that person compensation. If there's not, the case gets turned down and and that can be tragic sometimes if someone has horrible injuries or, or loses a loved one but the law is what controls in a situation like that whether there's a gray area really just depends on the case and that's a situation where neither side may agree and it might get decided by a judge whether the case is allowed to proceed okay that's I there's a lot of information there, but uh, <laughs> I know it's a long answer, but it's it's. Do you it's, sign? So do you sign? But do you, so I mean, <laughs> let me let sign, me give you the bottom me. line: is if if yeah. you if you or your child or your spouse is hurt in some situation where a waiver was signed, that's not the beginning and end of it. A classic example is if a parent signs a waiver for their child. Well, minor children are not are not allowed to sign contracts, and in my opinion, and I think there's there's law and, and judicial decisions to back this up 
in my opinion, you're not allowed to waive something for another person, even if it's your own child. I don't think the, pub, the public policy in this state allows for people to be releasing corporations or public entities for someone else. For example, if, if a minor has a lawsuit, there has to be a judge involved to settle that lawsuit. Well, it's just the same. You can't be signing contracts on behalf of a minor to enter a little league or, or a football league or, or go scuba diving or anything else of that nature. I w it's my opinion that, that generally a waiver like that is going to be ineffective no matter what the situation. When you're an adult signing a waiver on your own behalf, I would not say that's the end of the story. I would say an experienced lawyer could read that waiver and find out if it's if it's effective or not. Sometimes they're effective. I, I'm not saying I don't want to say all waivers are worthless, but I would not say if you think someone was negligent or someone wrongfully hurt you or a loved one, don't throw in the towel just because there's a waiver involved. I think an experienced attorney should be looking at that and seeing if if you can be helped. Very good, very good. Chuck, we've got about three minutes left. Do you have any follow-up um, comments? Is there anything that I didn't uh, touch upon today? Do you have any else, anything else uh, within the area of personal injury or litigation that you wanted to share with our audience? Well, it's, it's a huge area, and there's certainly many, many different things I could talk about. I guess something we did touch on today is, is really the work injuries. Uh, when people get hurt at work, generally they think of workers' compensation. But as I mentioned before, there can be products involved, and if those products are defective in some way for any number of reasons, that person might have a third-party case against the product's manufacturer. If someone's on a construction site doing their job and gets hurt, they may have a workers' compensation case and also a construction negligence case against the general contractor for not keeping a safe workplace or another subcontractor who, who's there at the same time or was there days earlier for creating some sort of hazardous condition. Uh, if you work for a railroad, you, you have a completely different situation where you really have a case under the Federal Employers Liability Act. That is not workers' compensation, and that's a situation where you can get pain and suffering. And under, under the, the FELA, the Federal Act, and when you work at a railroad, there are very, very extensive and complex regulations that describe what safety measures have to be done to make sure there's a reasonably safe workplace there. All these are situations where there, there could be more compensation for a, for a severely injured person than just their workers' comp claim, and that's why it's important to contact an attorney and make sure you protect yourself. Okay, well, contact an contact attorney. How do they contact you? Well, you can contact me by, by calling my office in Elmhurst. And, again, I do work all across the state of Illinois, but it's 630-782-5879. And, fortunately, those last four digits make up jury, so it's 630-782-JURY to call me. We have no consultation fee, and I'd be happy to talk to anyone that thinks they might need some legal help. All right. Well, Chuck, thanks so much for being on the show, and I know that you will be on the show Thursday as well, um, speaking uh Medical malpractice and some of the uh, things when, that happen when people get hurt uh, in the hospital. And, you know, that show is on the Lawyer's Toolbox show, which is uh, geared towards uh, uh, other attorneys. But certainly anyone listening to this show can listen to all the shows. And uh, if you have a medical malpractice uh, you know, question, listen tomorrow to that show. So, again, Chuck, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks. It was my pleasure. I look forward to the other show.
Okay, great. We'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in to the Consumer's Law Journal on ALR CRA Law Talk Radio. We have sponsors we also want to thank. Number one, the Intellectual Property Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Two, the Midwest Consulting Group and Jim Thompson. And three, credit damage expert George Finder. Again, this is a general information program. The advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice and does not, comments made do not construe or uh, start an attorney-client relationship. Um, all, Of course, these are very fact-specific issues, and you are always encouraged to call an attorney about the specific facts of your situation wherever you may be located. Um, also, we want to mention that all callers do remain confidential, and rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. Again, ALRPRA's Law Talk Radio mission is to bring attorney and non-attorney audiences the tips, tools, and practice area be better informed as we all navigate the evolving practice of law. With guests and listeners located nationwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. ALRPRA's underlying values are transparency, flexibility, and humility. We are a full-service law practice management agency located nationwide when professional quality matters to your firm. Thank you again, and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. This is Nick Augustine for ALRPRA, and thank you for your time.